Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardena Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masach HaPesachim, daf Mem Chet, 48. Well, today will be the last day, or at least for now, that I'm still going to discuss this concept of Ho'il, which I think everyone who's been learning along with us knows I've become very, very intrigued and interested in. And the Gemara goes back one more time to this discussion of Ho'il. So we know they really well established that the machloket over whether or not we use the principle of Ho'il is a no machlokas between Rav Chista and Rabba, right? Rav Chista does not hold by Ho'il, and Rabba does hold by Ho'il. And we got into this discussion initially because when we had our original Mishnah, one of the theories that the Gemara presented about what the actual machlokas between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua was, was over the principle of Ho'il. That Rabbi Eliezer did hold by Ho'il, right? That eventually the, uh, the owner of that dough could retract uh, giving it, giving that challah, right? Because he still, that person maintains still some ownership. And Rabbi Yeshua did not hold by the principle of Ho'il. So now they really want to go back and um, Rami Barhama comes and basically wants to know, uh, you know, this, this, this argument, Rabbi, is this really like the argument of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua? And what's interesting is, is that it took us this many pages to get to it, but the Gemara basically starts off with rejecting it. Um, and, you know, basically says, no, maybe it was just in, you know, this particular case, uh, you know, but but normally, you know, this is not really anything that they normally have a machlokas over. And then the Gemara proceeds to do something very interesting, which is they basically go through other Tanaitic statements, other bright toad that they have, which contain information about this similar machlokas between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua, and they bring one each where it says at the end that Rabbi Eliezer was silent or Rabbi Yeshua was silent, meaning that they conceded the point to the person that they were having the machlokas with. Um, and I just thought the methodology here was very interesting because what you're really seeing is, is the machlokas between Rafis and Rabbi was well known to the Amorayim who are setting this piece of the text on the page. But they are understanding here that they are many, you know, centuries, right? Not many, but, you know, they're, they're far away from the in initial uh, discussion between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua. And essentially what they're doing is they're going to primary sources, right? They're saying, okay, well, we have this one Mishnah, but can we find other Tanaitic sources that can clue us in into whether or not this is really the source, um, this is really the source of their machlokas. Um, and so I thought this was just the methodology and seeing them sort of work through other Tanaitic sources and what did they learn from it uh, was just, it, there was something, you know, that they were so self-aware in a way uh, of what it is that they're exactly trying to piece together. It's like you're, you're watching sort of the, the you know, the, the paper being written on this particular topic uh, in real time in the Gemara. I always like it when you put together the generations for us. I think that's always very helpful. So thank you for that. Thanks. Thanks. I also, I like yes, I <laughs> but I think that, yeah, no, I think that, listen, we know that there are people who learn Gemara in an ahistorical way, right? Where there's very little awareness of the different generations on the daf. And that is not my inclination. And that is not your inclination because we appreciate, I think, the generations on the daf, dafka. So you know, the fact that you have, you give us this edge of being able to put it all together, I, right. I appreciate it. And I think it. it's just important to remember 
you know, that in a way it's you're watching the discussion unfold across generations. So when the Gemara start, I exactly. always just love these periods or these texts, these passages where the Gemara is sort of very self-aware in that way. Um, so, you know, that's why it stood out to me uh, on this stuff. So I'm going to move from the sublime, let's say, in terms of this kind of, you know, meta discussion to the very basic um, mundane matter of how do you bake bread? How do you bake challah? Uh, but in this case, it's really about matzah, meaning as follows. The end of Amud Aleph here talks about um, how much flour do you need to be obligated in the mitzvah of challah, of taking challah, which we've discussed is, you know, where you take the amount and it goes to the Kohen, some of it gets burned. Nowadays, we don't have the Kohen, we burn it all together. And I believe we've mentioned the fact that there is a Masachet Chala, right? There is Mishnayot on Masachet Chala, which discusses all this, but there's no Bavli, there's no Talmud Bavli on it because it's a mitzvah that's really only relevant in Eretz Yisrael. So you could go learn the Yerushalmi if you want, but that's certainly a challenge in Palestinian Aramaic, which is even more abstruse, I think, than uh, the Bavli. Instead, I think it's interesting, or perhaps because of this, that we keep finding more tidbits about challah, meaning about this mitzvah of challah, in Masach Psachim. Meaning I might have thought Psachim would, you know, literally stay clear of challah in the sense that some of it is really about chametz, um, but in fact the opposite. And we end up getting, I think, a good amount of the Gemara that if we were to have a Masach challah, we would expect it to be there. So here's what happens. Um, again, we're talking, it's talking about the different amounts and then when are you going to be obligated to take challah? Now, Rav Yosef says, I'm Rav Yosef, This is when it comes to Pesach, the women of our family, meaning Didan, our women, are, have the practice of baking kviza kviza, meaning a small amount at a time. The measurement here is given three quarters of a log, but three quarters of a log means that you're inherently it's a, it's a smaller amount than the amount that would incur the obligation of taking challah. So Abai says to him, what are you thinking, right? What is, what is, your, what is your opinion here? Do you, do you think that this is a machmir position? Do you think that, because um, what they're doing is by taking smaller fistfuls, let's say, of the amount of flour, then they are able uh, to work faster, right, and to uh, you know diminish the risk of chametz of the of the dough itself becoming leavened, which I think is their point. Their point. That's why they have this practice. So Abayas is like, is this supposed to be to be machmir that they're trying to be stringent with regard to chametz? Because this is a stringency, he says, that leads to a leniency. And this phrase is something that is a halachic term that comes up, or halachic concept, I guess, that comes up now and again. Chumer de kula. It's a stringency that ends up leading to a leniency because on the one hand, you're using small amounts to make sure that you don't end up with chametz. That's your chumrah. But when you do that, you end up with not enough to be able to take challah. So now you have a kula, you have a leniency with regard to the mitzvah of, of, of challah, of taking challah. And these women for these loaves would not end up taking challah at all. Amr Leh, so Rav Yosef says back to him, the Abdan Nazir, we do what they do when they separate the challah. I'm sorry, when they when they do this, they're functioning in the in accord with the opinion of Ribliazer, which is to say that they do indeed separate challah. He says, each one of these loaves is its own thing, but they all together in the same basket end up being mitzaref. They combine together 
to give you the amount of flour, the amount of dough that would leave you obligated in challah. So on the one hand, they've got the chumrah of making sure that they're not putting too much together to risk chametz. And on the other hand, don't worry, they are going to fulfill that dough, right? The mitzvah of taking challah. And that is the psaq, meaning the idea that this could be mitzvah, that these different smaller loaves can combine together to count as more and that you would then be obligated to separate challah is in fact the psaq, according to Rabbi Huda, who said that Shmuel says this, right? And then Abai comes to the question and says, well, one second, isn't that the case that we're only really talking about these loaves and they're called here in the Gemara, Kikarot Shabavel, the Babylonian loaves, what does it mean that they shenoshot zomizo, that they kiss, that they bite from one each other, right? They end up they end up being like basically attached. So then when you separate them, you know, a little bit comes with each one, right? They kind of separate together. We've all seen this happen, I think, right? Where your rolls might end up touching each other, cookies, it could happen the same thing, right? And then you say, well, those are mitzvahs, those combine together. But if you're making, you know, long rolls, um, I, in my head, this is the equivalent of lachmaniot in Israel, uh, like long baguette rolls, except for, again, we're talking about matzah, so my guess is that we're still just talking about the shape. And that is, it says, about kachin, right, when there are these long rolls, and they bake separately, and they don't touch each other, then how can they possibly be mitzvah? How can they combine together if they aren't ever actually, in fact, together? Um, and then, you know, so the, the question here is, you know, a question on the position of Rebbe how far does his position go? And I don't think that there's really an answer for, uh, meaning, without looking into halachas farm, in the books that actually passed in the halacha, I don't think that the Gemara comes to answer him. Right? It doesn't rebut him in this case, I don't think. But, you know, I, I, right? I, yes, you did? I agree with you. I mean, what's interesting about this discussion here is sort of how the um, the shape makes a difference, right? I, that, that to me was very interesting. Right. So let me just, I'm sorry. So I see here now, it says, I'm... I've left off the punchline here. Amar Chanina, Afilu Ka'achin, meaning these these long these longer loaves. According to Rabbi Chanina, we do pass them like Rabbi Lezer. I'm not sure whether whether Abaye and Rabbi Yosho Ben Levi would accept that, right? That's that was my question. So certainly Rabbi Lezer thinks that it's it's mitzvah anyway. They don't have to be touching. The idea of them being touching is not part of why he thinks they combine. I think he thinks they combine because they're going to be baked together. And that's where the Gemara on this, in this passage concludes. It ends up talking about what happens if you put them together in the same oven. And then now I'm going to jump to the Mishnah that immediately follows. And this is really one of those times with the, the, the I don't know what you will call it, the structure of the Gemara together with the Mishnah, right? The way they put it together literarily really works very beautifully where we want to talk about different generations. This Gemara, which is, of course, Amoraic literature, leads right into the Mishnah that, of course, preceded it by several hundred years, uh, because the Mishnah then says, Rabban Gamliel Omer, So we've got three women who can be kneading the dough at the same time, right? And then they come to bake their doughs that they've made, these matzot, these cakes, whatever we're going to call loaves that we're going to call it. Um, and they bake it in one oven, but one after another, meaning it's the same hot oven, but the, they're waiting each in turn. And the, of course, the concern here is we're talking about Pesach still. We're talking about matzah. And what happens in that time, not that for person number one. Person number one is an easy question, right? You, you needed your bread. You made it into a loaf. You shove it into the oven. And now what comes out at the end of it is matzah. But what about those other two people who are waiting each in their turn, zoh zo, this one after that one? Um, then you have a question of, you know, what happened to that dough that was now formed into a loaf? 
and is it just waiting? Um, and the commentaries discuss whether there's whether there's a requirement to an, to have an ongoing kneading procedure, meaning they have to keep kneading the whole time until they're ready for the oven, or can they make the loaf and then just simply wait? Um, and then Chachamim Omrim, they have a different approach here. They say, Shalosh Nashim, again, we're still talking about the three women. Oskot b'batzek achad, you have three women who are dealing with one dough. Achat l'ashav, achat o'rechet, v'achat ofa, that each of them takes one of the tasks, I suppose we'll call them, of the making of this dough. One does the kneading, one does the fashioning into a shape, and one does the baking. Um, and so then you've got a really steady assembly line, in which case the concern, at least as according to Chachamim, is that there's later, lesser risk of coming into Chametz. And it seems in this context that Rabban Gamliel's position is fairly lenient, you know, except for the, those who say that you have to keep kneading the whole time, because really, you know, what's happening to that dough while it's waiting to go in, um, it seems to be, a, a, you know, a no-brainer that it would be getting chamet, that it would be, be becoming leavened chamet, and Rabbi Gamliel, I guess he feels that it's not enough time to really have to worry about it. Rabbi Akiva says, Rabbi Akiva Omer, V'lo kol hanashim, v'lo kol ha'itim, v'lo kol ha'tanurim shavim, zeh ha'klal, tafach tiltosh b'tzonein. Rabbi Kiva says, and it's really a, such a wonderful principle, not all women, not all wood, and not all ovens are the same. Meaning that anytime you're going to make a rule here, are, are they are they needing at the same speed? Is the oven the same amount of heat, of, of temperature, right? These things can really make a big difference. So here you, you need a rule of what are you going to do in terms of the dough itself. If the dough begins to rise, what should she do? It begins to rise. She should spread cold water. I mean, she puts her hands in cold water and then she puts it onto the dough in order to kind of um, abort or retard the leavening process from exactly this concern that, right, that, that maybe it, is, it hasn't gotten to the oven fast enough, but you can slow down the process with cold water, which I feel like, again, it's so easy to do that, really. I feel like we, in our current uh, handling of Pesach, would be very tense. Just to say, oh, well, you know, you're beginning to, the dough is beginning to rise, just to put some cold water on it, and it won't be well, a problem. This whole mission is interesting. I mean, you know, people didn't cook in kitchens the way that we do, right? Where you had access to a faucet with cold water and your own private oven. You know, often there were sort of these communal tenors, and everybody sort of had to share it. So I think this was a real concern. Um, I love Rabbi Akiva's, you know, understanding here, because I think he's right. There's all these other factors. Um, that contribute to whether or not something actually becomes chametz. You're dealing with a live process. And so Rav Gamliel and the Chachamim are trying to control something that sort of just has too many factors in it. So Rabbi Akiva sort of just saying, yeah, you just got to stop the leavening process. And how do you do that? You add coal to it. Right. And in the Gemara on this Mishnah, we have exactly that conversation your Dana, that you like to see come out, right? The Gemara presents the conversation between Rabbi Kiva and Rabban Gamliel, where he says to him, Rabbi Kiva says to Rabban Gamliel, you know, I, I was curious, you know, are you talking about people, you're, you're three women in your case, are you talking about women, are you talking about people who are, well, we've def- tried to define Zrizo before, are they diligent, are they careful, are they eager to do this in, in the most proper fashion? or not. And then he goes on to ask, you have moist wood or dry wood, right? Moist maybe is not the right term here, but you know, a little bit of a, a wet wood or a dry wood. Is your oven a hot oven? Is a cold oven? And so Rebecca Gabriel says to him, he says back, 
אין לך אלא מה ששנו חכמים, זה הכלל תפח לבסלותו של פטונים. Meaning, just deal with that, you've got your best principle, you're good to go. Don't worry about all of these different cases, which I found to be also a really interesting dynamic between the two of them. Very interesting, and I'm going to say something, I don't know that you'll agree with me, Anne, about this, but I think it also reflects something, like Revan Gamliel came from a very wealthy, you know, sort of established family. I'm going to guess Revan Gamliel did not spend that much time or necessarily know what was going on in the kitchen. Whereas Rabbi Akiva came from a poor family. And I, I, I do think there is something in here that reflects a little bit like a different viewpoint of how they've experienced the world. Like Rabbi Akiva's been in the kitchen. See, I thought you were going to say something else. I thought you were going to say Rabban. I thought you were saying Rabban Gamliel comes from a rabbinic family, which he does, right? And they made their dough and they knew what they were doing and they carried on the merry way. And Rabbi Akiva is a Balchuva. And he had to learn every last little detail. So he's going to ask on every last okay. little detail. That's another way to No, that's not what I was going to say. I, 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 I totally thought that's what you were going to say. And it's right. just all speculation, right? Is, I mean, we don't have it. Right. All of this is speculation. Right. However, though, I think in this particular case, what I can say is I could see how um, sort of life experience may impact how what your understanding is here, right? This has nothing to do with, you know, interpreting a pasuk, figuring out the halakha based on, you know, uh, that way. This really has to do with what do you think is the best method to solve a particular practical problem? Like, I don't think Reverend Gamliel's household right. had yes, to share exactly. on that. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. Okay. I hear that. I, I don't think that the one speculation 100%. is to the exclusion of the both, other speculation. Could possibly be true. Um, so I'll just move on to the last Mishnah here, which really deals with an interesting question, which is like, at what point do we say the leavening has actually happened, right? Well, most of us bake challah. So we wait our two, two and a half hours and the, you know, we leave the dough in the kitchen. I, I do whatever it is that I need to do. And I come back and I see that it, you know, that it rose. But here, because we're really thinking about matzah, right? And again, we know that we're on that sort of very, very strict timeline that at some point it sort of just changes. And now, of course, we do it with, um, you know, clots and things like that. I'll actually tell you something. Fun. So um, David Katz, who you've mentioned before, who's the baker at Papa Melech, uh, used to run at SAR, where my kids go to school, a, um, a wonderful matzah baking activity, which they still have the oven from. He doesn't run it now anymore. Um, and so my husband... But right. he made matzah. Right. right. And so my husband, who's the director of music at SAR, he made a playlist for him. Um, that was exactly 17 minutes long so that when people would come in to bake their matzah, it was exactly the amount of time uh, that you that you were allowed to sort of be busy with the dough before you had to get it into the oven. So what this mission is dealing with is basically what are the physical signs, right? Like we could time it to music, look at a watch or whatever. But in their day, it's saying like, what would you physically see with the dough itself? to say to you, uh, leavening has started, right? So this is what it says. Seor Yisrap ve'ochlo pator. Siduk Yisrap ve'ochlo chayav kare. So they're talking about two different stages here. One is called a seor. So you have to burn it because it's chametz, right? If Because it shows that there was the beginning of some leavening. But if you eat it, right, you're pator from kare. You know, so it's not, because it's not fully chametz yet. It just has the beginning of chametz. Then we have this so-called siduk. Right. And again, the Gemara, the Mishnah is going to explain what exactly this means. Right. Um, and if you have that, you have to burn it. So this is later in the process than the Sior. And if you eat that, 
then you get you get curried because in other words that is a, a, enough leavened enough that it really would fall under eating chametz on Pesach. Right, so I love the descriptions here because I'm not sure I would know what this looks like. Right, so siyur looks like cracks, looks like the antenna of a locust. Um, right, and so for siduk, it's when the cracks are like intermingled, like they they touch each other. Zebazen, excuse me, Divrei Rabbi Yehuda. This is the what how Rabbi Yehuda understands it. So the Chachamim come and they disprove the Tanakhama here. And they say, no, in both of these cases, Siyor and Siduk, um, you're high of curry. And I kind of understand the Chachamim's position because it's not like you could eat a little bit of chametz, right? Like either it's chametz or it's not chametz. And so this description is really out there, right? The dough has become pale, like the, like the face of a person whose, hand, whose hair stands up because of fear. So it has this pale color to it, like the pale color that a person's face would have uh, if they become fearful. Um, so very interesting, Gamar, that's sort of trying to take us through the physical process. What are the physical signs that you would see um, if something were to become, uh, if something were to become chametz? And seeing this interesting machlokas, where I ultimately think the chacham sort of fall out right here, you can't have multiple stages. Like either it's, it is chametz or it's not chametz. So the distinction that sort of the siyur maybe you could eat, but you wouldn't get curry, for, not that you can eat. If you ate it intentionally, you would not get the punishment of curry, right? Uh, just doesn't really make sense uh, to the chachamim. And then the Gemara goes on to talk a little bit more about um, what those definitions are and that they have another Mishnah where it does say, you know, that that, that you would, uh, you know, trying to figure out exactly who wrote this Mishnah and maybe pieces of it is, is Rabbi Mayer. Um, but... Again, it's interesting to see sort of they're using physical signs as opposed to using actual time, which is the way that we practice this today. I really like your point here about the, it's the Gemara's point, really, but you've articulated right for us the idea that the question of do you have stages of as something is becoming chametz or do you have like pre-chametz, now you're chametz and done. And I feel like it would be so, it would be even more challenging, right? We're talking about a very short span of time to be able to say, well, you're not quite chametz, so you're not going to get lashes, but you also, you're not going to get curry, but you also can't eat it, right? This, this in-between thing becomes, would be very hard, I think, to, to live, right? In theory, it works fine, right? We have stages of all kinds of things. But I think if we were really trying to practice it and then put it to the test in terms of, you know, if there was a Sanhedrin and punishments and so on, um, I think that, you know, far be it for me to say that Chazal made the right call, right? Because they obviously made the right call, but I, it, it sits well. well no, I, I think it makes well. a lot of sense. It's just too hard. Uh, it, that in between, and especially if you're thinking about connecting it to the Mishnah before, where we're trying to basically tell people who bake dough, you know, what is, like, at what point would it be considered leaven? If you were waiting to use an oven, at what point would you say, or you walked away from your dough for a minute and you came back. At what point would you say, no, it's really chametz now? I think having this in-between thing would just be too confusing for people. And we know, right? We have this principle that they try to make sure that you could live with it's, the decrees right. of Chazal, right? Exactly. That well, that's makes our sense. discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. 
let us know what you thought about this stuff and some of the issues that it brings up on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.